0: Well, good evening, everyone. And I want to thank you so much for your prayers. As Phil has mentioned, this has been very challenging and very difficult. On top of that, things have kind of gone wrong in the household, so it's been a challenging week, but God is faithful. We are here to study a very interesting passage. I want to say that... When we finish tonight, we're not going to be able to answer all the questions that the passage raises. We may not agree among ourselves how this prayer actually was answered, or this what we'll discuss. And I haven't convinced myself how this section of scripture actually plays out. We have to find the lessons for us. We study Second Timothy chapter three, or chapter Second Timothy chapter three. Verse 16. Many of you committed that to your heart, but it says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So that is our task tonight to look at this passage and see what God is teaching us. Turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 11. But as you do, I want to say, we need to spend some time to prepare for this study. So a little background. You may recall from our church's study of of the book of Joshua, the great victories God gave his people. They drove out the Canaanites out of the land that God promised to Abraham's descendants. God gave Israel the conquest of the promised land. But they failed to completely drive out the Canaanites from the land. Plus, the nation was surrounded by pagan nations. And then we come to the book of Judges, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with this book. The very first generation that was raised up following the book of Joshua, they turned away from God. The nation of Israel was surrounded by pagan nations. They intermarried with the Canaanites who lived among them and began to worship the gods of the Canaanites. And God became angry with his people. He allowed invaders to swarm into the land and conquer the people. And they became servants and slaves. But then God's people repented of their idolatry. They put away their idols. Repent and asked God to forgive them and relieve them of their bondage. And God would raise up then a leader. Scripture calls him a judge, but he's more of a commander. He mustered up the people into an army. And with God's help, they were able to drive the invaders out of the nation. And then the land had peace for about as long as the judge lived. But then the judge died. The next generation would fall away. And the cycle repeated itself over and over and over. Fall into idolatry. God's anger. God is angry. Invaders come to conquer the people. Come slaves. Repent. And God raises another leader to repel the invaders. And I looked at this study, I thought, why is it so easy for the people of God to so, fall, so easily fall in the sin of idolatry? We think about sin and the empty promises it makes. Promises to acquire power, riches and influence, the satisfaction of pleasure, of sensuality, manipulation, conquest. Sin pays the debt that anger and revenge demand, and you go on and on. Sin causes people to cast aside sol- cast aside God and His commandments for a season of pleasure. As easy it was for God's people in the time of judges, it's just as easy as it is now. There is nothing new under the sun. Idols exist in biblical accounts. Idols, ex- idols exist today. And now I'm going to start now in Judges chapter 10. Phil asked if you could read Judges 10 and 11. So those who had a chance to read, I'm going to kind of begin in verse 6. We are 300 years into the book of Judges. The setting for Judges 10 and 11 is in the land and the people of Gilead. And we'll talk about who or what is Gilead shortly. Once again, the people fall into idolatry and they serve a multitude of gods that forsook and forsook the Lord. You see the list. In verse 6, it seems like all the idols of the pagan nation that surround them were the ones they worship. And scripture says that God's anger was hot against Israel. It says he sold them into the hands of the Philistines to the west and the hands of the Ammonites to the east. Invaders came and swept through the land. The Ammonites swept through the land of Gilead. And for 18 years, they oppressed Israel. And after 18 years, the people came to their senses and cried out to God. <clears throat> but God chided them. He told them, cry out to the gods you serve. See if they will save you. But they continued to, continue to cry out. They put away their gods and they served the Lord. And the scriptures say that God was grieved by their misery. And now the elders of the land of Gilead are moved by God to find a leader. Someone to fight against Ammon, someone to be the head of Gilead. And so now, we're going to read the first three verses of Judges chapter 11. I want to say that the events in the first three verses parallel the events at the end of Judges chapter 10. So they take place at roughly the same time. So beginning of Judges chapter 11, I want to read the first three verses, and this is out of King James Version. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, and he was a son of a harlot, and Gilead begat Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman." Then Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of, land of Tob. And there were gathered, with, they were gathered vain men to Jephthah, and he went out with them. Okay, we're introduced now to a man named Jephthah. Scripture says he is from Gilead, a Gileadite, a mighty man of valor. To make this confusing, not only was Jephthah from Gilead, but his father's name was Gilead. Jephthah's father was Gilead, but his mother was a prostitute. His half-brothers, who were born of Gilead's wife when they grew up, they rejected, G- they rejected Jephthah. They thrust him out of the inheritance, and he fled to the land of Tob. The Tob is the land to the east of Gilead, near the Syrian desert. It was here that Jephthah gathered, organized an army, a group of vain men, men that were empty, men of no reputation, men like Jephthah cast out, and they were able to provide for themselves via raids into the neighboring nations. And it appears that his reputation as a leader of men probably got back to the people of Gilead, back to the elders of Gilead. Yeah, guys going to pull up that, go ahead and pull up that uh, slide now, that map. Okay, I want to show what's going on here. Take a brief time to show what's going on. Okay, this is the map of Israel. Up here is the Sea of Galilee. Down here is the Dead Sea. And this is the Jordan River. The Gilead Mountains are mountain ranges that extends from the Sea of Galilee in the north down to the Dead Sea. But at the setting of this account, Gilead has become the known, this region here, some all some are all of the Transjordan tribes. This has been known now as the land of Gilead. Jephthah comes from the land of Gilead. Ammon to the east has invaded Gilead all the way to the Jordan River and has subjected the people of Gilead to slavery for 18 years. At the same time, Jephthah has been driven away from his family into a land known as Tob, somewhere along the border of Gilead and the Syrian desert. Aram here is the ancient Hebrew word for Syria, so he's located somewhere here in this area. You take it down guys. So now Jephthah is now in Gilead and we're going to skim through verses four through ten. And the elders of Gilead make a trip to Tob, Tob to find Jephthah. And they find him him to be their captain to fight against the Ammonites. And Jephthah says, hey, you guys hated me. You drove me away. And now you just walk right here and want me back. And they say, okay, let's forget all about that. That bygones be bygones. Just come back and fight for us. We'll make you our head. Well, Jephthah agrees and comes back to be their head. The man they cast out years ago comes back now as the head or judge of Gilead. And I want to look now strictly at verse eleven. Again, out of the King James, verse eleven says: Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them. And Jephthah uttered all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Okay, we learn a little bit more of Jephthah. He knows God. He turns to God and not some idol. He brings all the events to the Lord in prayer, repeating what he agreed to with the elders and seeking God before he confronts the Ammonites. He lays it all out before the Lord, seeking his help. And now we're going to skim through the next 16 verses. We learn a little bit more about Jephthah. He's a mighty man of valor and man who prays. And now he hears he knows the history of Israel as told by Moses in the Pentateuch. Jephthah does not immediately go to battle. He instead looks for a peaceful solution, much like what Moses outlined in Deuteron- Deuteronomy chapter 20. He says, messengers to the king of Ammon, asking him, what do you have against me? Why do you come and fight me? The king responds, I want my land back. Give back the land taken from me when he came out of Egypt. And now we see Jephthah knows the history of Israel during the 40 years in the desert. History recorded by Moses. Jephthah sends back messengers to the king correcting the history. We did not take your land. We did not take the land from Moab. God told us not to fight against Edom, Moab, or Ammon. We went around those lands. And we asked the king of the Amorites to pass through their land peaceably. Instead, They came out to fight us. We defeated his army, took possession of the land over 300 years ago, and now you come out to fight us? We have not wronged you. You have wronged us. Let the Lord judge between us. But the king of the Ammonites would not listen, and now Jephthah has no other other option but to fight the Ammonites. And now finally we come to the prayer of Jephthah, recording verses 29 through 31. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh and passed over Mizpah of Gilead and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed over unto the children of Ammon. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into my hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Verse 29 says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. This is not a New Testament outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is an Old Testament manifestation of God's Spirit from time to time in the Old Testament. It came upon people to give them power to do God's will, enable them to serve God in a special way. When the spirit descended, it led to immediate action of the recipient. And presumably, the spirits presence did not remain with the person. Now, I've got a list of some people mentioned in the Old Testament that God's spirit came upon them. And this is not a list of saints. It came upon Balaam, who was sent by the king of Moab to curse Israel. Instead, he was filled with the spirit and blessed Israel. It fell on Samson four times. Each time, it enabled him to use his great strength to defeat or turn aside an enemy. It came on King Saul three times, each time he prophesied or worked on God's behalf. It came upon David when Samuel anointed him as a youth, and the scriptures say that the Spirit came upon David from that day forward. Jehaziel was a Levite when Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20 gave his prayer to God that he would save the nation of Judah when armies marched against Jerusalem. God's spirit fell upon this Levite. He stood up and said. The battle is not yours but is mine. And also he fell on a priest named Zechariah. Not the prophet. But Zechariah stood up by the people of Judah. And condemned them in their greatest. dark, the Darkest time in their history. Right before the exile. He stood up and condemned the people for their idolatry. And for that he got stoned. It came upon others in the Old Testament. Every case, when the Spirit of God came upon someone, their actions was immediate. So now the Spirit of God comes upon Jephthah. And what does he do? He walked through the land. He's empowered and emboldened by the Spirit. And he comes to the Ammonites, resolute in his task. And then he prayed to the Lord. Prayed directly to the Lord. He said, if thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into my hands, Then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's. I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Jephthah's prayer contains a vow. He's praying directly to God and makes a vow. I'm sure in our assembly we have studied about vows. A man shared with me today that it's actually part of the 1689 Confession of Faith. But what does the Bible teach about vows? What is a biblical vow? The best definition I can find is that a vow is a promise made directly to God. Vows in Scripture are made to God as a promise of expectation of his favor or in thanksgiving for his blessing. Vows are purely voluntary. Some people made vows in the Old Testament, such as Jacob, Jephthah, Hannah, Absalom made vows in the Old Testament. And it's just not an Old Testament practice. Paul and other early church believers also made vows in the New Testament, and the Old Testament scriptures were taught that vows are very serious business, and you sh- they should not be acted out rashly. Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 and 22: If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. Ecclesiastes 5, 4, and 5 say much the same thing. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God shall surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I read the same verse again. Sorry. Ecclesiastes 5, 4, and 5. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow, that you should vow and not pay. Now consider not a vow, but a biblical oath. Oaths and vows, sometimes ministers use them interchangeably, but they come from different Hebrew words. I think a good biblical definition of an oath is a promise made with God as a witness. Oaths are present in the scriptures also. Numbers chapter 30 verse 2 speaks about both vows and oaths. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Just one more thing about vows and oaths. In the Levitical law, there is a way to be forgiven for an oath that you make rashly that you can't or should not keep. It's spelled on Leviticus 5. But there is nothing like that for a vow in the Levitical law. Vows were expected to be kept. And Jephthah vows what? That if the Lord give the Ammonites into his hands that when I go home, whatsoever comes out of the house to meet me shall be the Lord's, and I'll offer it up as a burnt offering. I want to go to that last phrase. it up as a burnt offering. It is spelled out in detail in Leviticus chapter 1. The burnt offering I believe is mentioned more frequently. In the Old Testament any other offering. This is God's commandment for atonement for sinful man. A man was to bring a male from a herd of cattle. Or a male sheep or a male goat without blemish. Or turtle doves or pigeons bring it to the tabernacle, place his hands on his head and it should be accepted for him to make atonement for sin. Then he would kill it. The priest would take the blood from the animal and sprinkle it against the altar. The animal would then be cut up. The head and fat would be put on a a pile of wood. The entrails and legs would be washed and then laid on the wood also. And the entire offering would be burnt. It was fully dedicated to the Lord. Jephthah vowed he would do this, that whatsoever would come out of his house would surely be the Lord's and offer it up as a burnt offering. So now we're tempted to get in Jephthah's head. What were you saying or thinking? If he knew the law, was he expecting a bull calf or a male sheep or goat to run out of the house to meet him? What was he intending? Did he not think this through very well? What if something else came out? What well, if a dog came out, or a cat, or a person? Many commentators have called this a foolish vow, a vow that wasn't well thought up. A vow that could very, have very unintended consequences, and we'll see shortly what did come out of his house. It wasn't what he had in mind. But still others regard these vows, and others, they argue that Jephthah knew exactly what he was saying, and they do thus by breaking down verse 31 by looking at the Hebrew meanings of some of these words. If you look at verse 31, look at the word whatsoever. Some of you may have notes in your Bible regarding this word. In the Hebrew, this word is not gender neutral. It is often rendered in a masculine form. So some scholars argue that Jephthah fully had to be met by a person. He had someone in mind, but who would it be? Likely a male servant. Jephthah for years led men living in the land of Tob. So some would be acting as servants. And one would come out to meet him when he returned home. And in verse 31. Again the word and in the Hebrew can be rendered as or. So they say you rearrange verse 31 to say this. Then I shall be that whosoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me. When I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, or I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So you see you got these two different thoughts about how this played out. Some conclude that Jephthah knew what he was doing. By the way, he had the Spirit of God on him. He made a well-thought-out vow, only it didn't turn out the way he expected. So was Jephthah's vow a well-thought-out, spirit-led vow that we will see had an unexpected outcome? Or was it as others say, a rash vow, uttered in haste, caught up in the exuberance that led to careless words? It certainly was a vow that wasn't necessary, but it was uttered, and now the unexpected consequences. And now I want to read a long section, verses 32 to 40, so follow along. So Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them and the Lord delivered them into his hands and he smote them from Arior, er- even till he come to Mineth even twenty cities and into the plain of the vineyards with a very great slaughter. Thus the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house and behold his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances and she was his only child beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her, that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me. For I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. And she said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which has proceeded out of thy mouth. For as much as the Lord hath taken vengeance for thee of thy enemies, even of the children of Ammon." And she said unto her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go up and down the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. And he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto his father who did with her according to his vow which he had vowed. And she knew no man and, with, and it was a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in a year. Well, God did deliver the Ammonites into Jephthah's hands. Twenty cities were captured. It was called a great slaughter. And now flusheth victory led the people of Gilead to a great victory. He is now the judge. He's vindicated against his kin, Drove him away years ago. Now he comes back as a hero. He returns back as a people's leader. And perhaps perhaps not, as he approaches home, the vow is on his mind. And now we see the full measure of his vow. Was Jeff expecting a clean animal? Something appropriate for a burnt offering? Was he expecting a servant? as someone to believe that he would dedicate to the Lord? It was none of these. It was his daughter that came out to meet him. His only child. She came out to welcome her father, the victorious leader of Gilead. And now Jephthah realizes the full consequence of his vow. He rents his clothes. He groans. His daughter has now become the object of his vow, the unintended consequences of his vow. Presumably Jephthah tells his daughter of the vow that he made to the Lord and that he could not go back on it. He could not go through with it. And how she how would she respond to whom the vow would and how did she respond what was the daughter's response she could have reacted in opposition to her father she could have pleaded with him not to fulfill his vow or find some means convincing him to change his mind you wonder how Jephthah would have responded if she begged him not to fulfill his vow or find some means or she could have just ran away We don't know how old she was, but she seems to be old enough to be given to someone in marriage. Instead, she tells her father to hold to his vow. She tells him he has to honor what he has vowed, but she makes this very odd request. Instead of pleading with him to change his mind, she asks for two months to go to the mountains with her companions to lament her virginity. To me, this is extremely puzzling. Again, she's lamenting her virginity when her life is about to end. She would, her life would end. She would never have an opportunity to marry. Why is she now lamenting this? Is she expecting that she is not going to be put to death, but instead commit herself to life without a husband? How do the scriptures say how this ended? It simply says... And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father who did with her according to his vow which he had vowed. So we, others who read the scripture wonder, did he or didn't he offer his daughter as a burnt offering? Either answer presents problems that we wrestle with. If he killed his daughter... It seems if Jephthah knew the Old Testament law, would he fall to the letter of the law? Would he take his daughter to the tabernacle to fulfill his vow? Would he find a willing priest? Would he kill his daughter, cut her up in pieces, and burn her body on a pile of wood? It seems unfathomable that he would do any of this. I don't believe he could find a priest that we found to carry this out. And likewise, the people of Gilead, it was a brief period of national repentance and now Jephthah goes out and does something that the pagan nations do commit a human sacrifice would they have tried to resist him and say don't risk God's anger. And finally the final verses chapter 11 she speaks of her virginity three times and says nothing if she says nothing about her untimely death as a young woman like a teenager. She simply mourns her virginity. On the flip side This was a very wicked time. Gilead was far from the tabernacle. From their previous idolatrous practice, the people of Gilead knew and likely practiced all forms of wickedness and perverted acts. It was a time when every man did what was right in his own eyes. And what if Jephthah did not kill his daughter? What did he do to fulfill his vow? Again, some scholars offer up some Old Testament history of women serving the Lord as evidence of women dedicated to the Lord. Moses in Exodus 38 verse 8 makes an observation about women assembling at the door of the congregation. 1 Samuel 2.22, the young people have been studying 1 Samuel, so they may be familiar with this. Eli the priest has two evil sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Among their other sins, has sexual relations with the women at the door of the tabernacle. You can even go into the old, into the New Testament. You think of Anna, the widow, in Luke chapter 2, who has served the Lord in the temple for 84 years. Another thing tossed out is that when Jesus was betrayed, he's in the courtyard awaiting his trial before the council. Simon Peter is also in the same courtyard, and this is very late at night. Two Daniels separately accuse him of being a follower of the Lord that he both denies. Is this the role Jephthah's daughter could have performed so that his vow is completed? Or was it something similar? Even though we're repulsed to think he could have sacrificed his daughter, I have to admit the evidence against, him kill, the evidence against killing a daughter doesn't seem to be too convincing. It would have helped if the writer of judges were to give a clearer conclusion. How did Jephthah actually fulfil his vow? The writer simply says he did with her according to his vow which he had vowed. The writer may have tended to be purposely vague, that if Jephthah did kill his daughter, the writer did not want to give license to future generations doing the same thing, taking the life of a child in performance of a vow. But in all of this, Scripture does not rebuke or condemn Jephthah. He's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, the heroes of faith. He's mentioned with other men from Judges, other sinners. Gideon, who late in life, made a garment which contained gold, an ephod which caused the people to stumble into sin. Samson, he continually lusted after pagan women, which eventually led to his capture and imprisonment. Along with other heroes of the faith who were sinners, like David, who had Uriah murdered to cover his sins of adultery with Uriah's wife, and Moses, who as a young man murdered an Egyptian. The point is that all men are fallen sinners. Yet God can take fallen men and use them for great purposes. Men like David, Moses, Samson, Gideon, and Jephthah. So did Jephthah kill his daughter? a man told me that I have to tell what I think. What do I think happened? And I have to confess, I don't know. More than half of the commentators I looked at believe he did kill his daughter. But I can't imagine how a father could actually and purposely kill his daughter. But to say he actually did not kill his daughter, I can't find that compelling evidence. So I have to admit, I don't know. Like I said earlier, we won't be able to answer all the questions that rise from this scripture. We're not going to end here. We're not going to say we don't know and we're done. I want to pull out three three points I believe fall out of this passage. The first point is the use of vows or promises to God. Vows are present in the Bible and vows are present today. And scripture is quite clear about their use. Vows are made after careful, careful consideration, if there is doubt, then don't vow. For if a vow is made, it should not be broken. If you do, the scripture calls you a fool. I think we all think the, first, the most frequent use of vows in the world today is what are wedding vows. Typical wedding we've been to. The minister stands before the man and woman, the spokesman of God. And he asks questions of both of them. Do you promise to God that you do as he commands in the marriage relationship towards your spouse? Then often the bride and groom make vows to each other. You vow to take this person for your spouse no, no matter what happens, what unforeseen event happens, for better, or for worse, for richer, or for poor, in sickness and in health. Whatever you want to call it, a vow, a promise made to God, an oath, a promise made to a spouse with God as a witness. You hear this at the end of the The end of the vows, the minister says, what God has joined, let not man put asunder. Marriage vows are to be made and then kept. You may feel compelled someday to make a vows in your walk with God. I know I have. I have promised God to do something if he would answer my prayer. I have to admit to you, now, after reading this, I'm taking vows a lot more seriously after this passage. So if you're inclined to vow, carefully pray and make consideration. And when you vow a vow unto God, do not delay in paying it. The second point, did God accept Jephthah's sacrifice of his daughter if he did kill her? I'm saying absolutely not. If Jephthah did offer his daughter up as burnt offering, if he truly did kill his daughter and then burn her remains on the pile of wood, was this somehow acceptable to God? The answer is no. God's word makes it very clear that he hated human sacrifice. I'm going to share a couple of scriptures that God did not ever want a human sacrifice. Leviticus 18.21 You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of the Lord, the name of God, I am the Lord. Leviticus 20.20 20, 20, verse 2 Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. Even with these warnings during the deepest depth of the nation of Judah's idolatry, human sacrifices practiced. The psalmist writes in Psalm 106: They sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. From the testimony of the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, idolatry becomes so vile, the people of God offered up human sacrifice. Jeremiah writes. For the sons that you have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the sun in Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did I come into my mind. God considers human sacrifice a great sin. Jephthah seems to know the political law you would think he would know of this warning. Yet, did he still have to kill his daughter because of his vow? Did he not sin if he killed his daughter? He sinned twice. First, he sinned if he made a vow to kill his daughter or to kill a person. And then he sinned again by killing his daughter. But Tom the Old Testament law gave him no recourse to break his vow. That may be true in the law, but God always allows a person to humble himself, to admit to sin. In this case, admit to the sin of making a vow. To repent of your wrong. You look at the book of Judges, how many people of God continually fell into idolatry, yet they repented, and God restored their relationship. Jephthah simply could have repented and God would have accepted his repentance. And if his daughter, if he did kill his daughter, she did not have to die. Yet he made his vow. Did he think God's reputation was on the line or his? Was his heart full of pride and he couldn't back down? Who was satisfied for fulfilling his vow? Was it God or Jephthah? Like Jeff did, we say careless words, say things that we should not say, say things without thinking, say things in anger. Promise to do something in retribution, in retaliation, to loved ones, to a parent, to a spouse, to a child, to a friend, to a associate, to a stranger. Say things we refuse to recant, refuse to admit fault, ref- refuse to repent. We thump our chest saying we are justified in our words when we've deeply harmed someone else. Maybe we were technically correct in our response or our actions, but our words should not have been said. Will you repent when you say careless words or does your pride prevent you? And finally, the last point I want to make is that Jephthah's daughter, if she was sacrificed, she died in vain. The Old Testament is filled with warnings and accounts of human sacrifice As I studied this, I wasn't aware how widespread this practice was. The Old Testament law was clear for atonement for sin. An innocent creature that had never sinned, that was not capable of sinning, had to be put to death to make an atonement for man's sin. No man could be a suitable sacrifice of sin. For all men born of the sin nature of Adam are unacceptable. No man could be a sacrifice for sin. God required a sinless sacrifice. Man cannot be the sacrifice. God himself will become a man to be that human sacrifice. The Bible is written for one human sacrifice. The Old Testaments point toward it. The Gospel point at it. And the New Epistles remind us that only one Only one human sacrifice in all the scriptures was accepted by God for an atonement for sin. An atonement for sin for all who believe. I want to end with this quote from Matthew Henry regarding this account of Jephthah and his daughter. Matthew Henry says, Concerning this and other such passages in the sacred story which learned men are in the dark, divided and in doubt about, We need not much perplex ourselves. What is necessary to our salvation, thanks be to God, is plain enough. Yes, it is plain enough to understand that God became man himself, was put to death on a cross to be the only human sacrifice acceptable to God. Who was this human sacrifice? The second person of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close the word of prayer. Father, we've opened the scriptures up to read a very difficult passage. And I confess that I do not have answers. I have not spoken with any clear indication how this vow came about. and The vow was accomplished. We trust, Lord, that you have the answer. We trust Lord that there are things we can learn from this about vows, about repentance, about human sacrifice. And we trust, Lord, we know that only one human sacrifice was accepted for sin. And that was God came down as man, who died on a cross to save her from our sins. The second person of God, Lord Jesus Christ, is the one sacrifice that you accepted. Thanks be to God for this work on the cross. In name we pray, amen.